Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right. Well, good morning, everybody, again, and so good to see all of you. We dive into Hebrews 12 this morning, and I don't know, it seems like four verses at a time is the pace that the Lord has for the end of the, of the book here, but we'll see. We're, it's going to be a, a really cool message, I think, this morning. I think you'll, you'll all get a lot out of it, and... You know, Hebrews 12, it, it's kind of closing out, if you remember Hebrews 11, we went through all these different names in the Bible of these great people in the Bible that lived by faith and they pressed on by faith and all of this, and then all of a sudden it's the ultimate one, the ultimate example, it turns to Jesus starting in chapter 12. So we've got a lot to learn, we learned a lot about all these other people from chapter 11, we have a lot to learn from what Jesus did, it's kind of the ultimate example, the ultimate warrior of the faith, so to speak. But before we dive in here, like we always should do before we open the word of God, let's, let's go to prayer. God, I thank you so much for, again, this time together. Lord, I thank you for Hebrews 12. I thank you for this entire book. Lord, the word of God, thank you for it. And God, we know that there are, there are many right now fighting off illnesses and sickness all over our community. It seems to be that time of year. God, we pray radical healing upon them. We pray that you'd breathe new life into the people that are serving you in this community and give them strength to stand up and to continue fighting and pressing on for you and your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you for this time together. Again, God, we know that this is so unique to live in in this day and age in a place that we can gather together to study your word without the threat of persecution or imprisonment. And God, we know that won't last forever. And so while we have this time, we thank you for it. Please be with us as we dive into Hebrews 12, God, and teach us everything. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So like we, sh- like we always do when we dive into God's word, we need, to, we need to trust and rely on his anointing. 1 John 2, 27 and 28, it's, it's the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit, that, that teaches us everything. And as we're turning to the ultimate example, which is Jesus, we've got to see what the Lord has for us in these four verses about what he suffered on our behalf. And it's going to be a, a really neat uh, example to see how did Jesus handle persecution, and how should you and I respond to persecution? And that's the key. So as we move forward here, chapter 12, it, we're in the last part of this, this kind of end of the section of the book of Hebrews. And chapter 13 is obviously the last chapter, the closing remarks. But the true and better response is faith. We're, we're almost at the end of that section. And if you remember from chapter 11, these were all the people we went through. We, we went through what is faith? Through faith, the worlds were framed in verses 2 and 3. The mark of faith with Abel and Enoch in verses 4 and 5. Faith is pleasing. We looked at Noah in verses 6 and 7. By faith, you're called. We looked at Abraham in verses 8 through 10. We're persuaded by faith with Sarah to press on in verses 11 through 13. And then our new city, our forever home with him in verses 14 through 16. Esteeming Christ above all in 17 through 26. Deliverance by faith in 27 through 31, and then the world is not worthy to close out that chapter last time. And then as you turn the page, it starts into chapter 12 about Jesus. Now, keep in mind, the chapter breaks, the chapter divisions are man-made. And so, you know, where, where that true division is, but the theme continues because chapter 12 will start out with the word, the Lord says, wherefore. So because of everything we read in chapter 11, Wherefore, look to Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit's connecting what all these people from chapter 11 did to what we are called to today. 
and the fact that we're running toward a king, the king of kings and the prince of princes, the one above all. But we do have an audience observing how we handle things in our lives. And this is really interesting. The Lord is going to make a reference here in chapter 12 from the book of Peter that's really interesting about angels. But how can we be successful in this race? That's the question. So we should expect persecution. We, we should expect little, tr- little T, tribulation and trouble. We should expect trials in our lives, right? For living for the Lord, you're, you're not going to have an easy time all the time. The Lord, the Lord promised you that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But praise God, he has overcome the world. And so because he's overcome, whatever the world throws at you, you and I can overcome. And so was there anyone that set a better example than all those people in chapter 11? You know, the, yes, his name's Jesus. He, he set the ultimate standard, which is why the Lord turns to look at him now in his life. But we can succeed and not grow weary if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. That is the key. Remember when, when Peter walked out on the water, as long as he was looking up and staring at Jesus, he could walk on that water. The second he started looking down at where he was walking, he started to sink. And that's the key. There's an object lesson for you and I there that as long as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we can be successful in this walk and we can traverse the waters and the storms of life. And so if you remember to close out chapter 11, just go back a few verses here in verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. Remember, we took each one of those last week. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women received their dead, raised to life again. That was a really neat part last week, I thought, that when you look at all the times that people were resurrected from the dead in the Bible, so often it was on behalf of women. And it's amazing that we're going to look at today, actually. The women were the first ones to run to the tomb. It's amazing how that they, the Lord has them tied to resurrection somehow. But, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And so when you look at these verses, um, there's a lot of people through the Bible that the Lord just frankly said, hey, time would fail us. If we went into every one of these people, we wouldn't have enough time. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder. Remember, that was a reference likely to Isaiah from Manasseh. I think Manasseh from the ancient writings sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. It's like when we talked about that last week, into that after service, Mabry came to me and was like, Dad, I loved that this week. It was so violent. It was awesome. Just lots of fighting and standing up for the faith. It was great. So anyway, I'm sorry if any of you kids were uh, <laughs> disturbed last week talking about this, but of whom the world was not worthy. And so we talked about that, right? It's one of the, my favorite verses in chapter 11, of whom the world was not worthy. You know, the world is not worthy of you and I just like it wasn't worthy of them. And we talked a lot about because of that, why do we give so much of ourselves to it? It's not worthy of your time or affection. Jesus is. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And so when you look at this, now this is diving in to start chapter 12 today. So because of all of that, wherefore, wherefore, see the Lord is linking everything from chapter 11 to what is starting in chapter 12. So because of all these great people, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, This is amazing because you don't often think about this, right, in your walk. 
that you and I, yes, we are working for an audience of one, but there are a lot of people watching how you react and what you do in this world. And it's not just people around you. It's also the angels on the other side and people that have gone before us. And that's what the Lord references in 1 Peter 1. We're going to look at it in a minute. But because of that, now, this, this specific aspect of our walk is something that is very near and dear to my heart because the Lord corrected me a long time ago. And it was when Randy and I were living in Kansas City and not to bog you down with the whole story, but there was just something, something bad that happened on this, on this big project I was a part of, and there was somebody that I was working with that got all of the credit for it from our CEO. And it really bothered me a lot. I mean, I went home and I was like, what am I doing, Lord? I've been going on all these trips, working long hours, spending so much time away from my family, to do this first-of-a-kind project in the nation. I'd actually, if you look back, this was about 10 years ago or 11 years ago now. If you look back, what we did, it, it turned the corner for the U.S. and made us a net exporter of energy to the world. It was a big deal. And, and I remember I got no credit for it at all. And I remember I was so, I was so frustrated at home and because the CEO wrote this letter about it. And I was reading it, it was a Friday evening, and I was reading it, and my heart just sank, and the Lord just asked me one question. He just said, Matt, are you working for the praise of man? That was it. That's all he asked me. And, and I just stopped, right? It literally, it changed my life that one night with that one question, because I just, I just put my phone down, I was like, Lord, no, I'm not. I am not working for the praise of man. But you are working for the praise of one with an audience of many because they are looking to you and I for how we act in this life. And it's what happens, you know, it's simple things. Do you pray over your meal when you're out at a restaurant? How do you respond to your kids if they're out of line in public? You know, people notice these kind of things. And what do you do outside of these walls? You know, you're with a lot of like-minded people, right? in a community serving Jesus, but how do you look in the business world? How do you look out at schools? How do you look when you're out of this place? People take notice and don't think they don't because you will be doing things that maybe years later, someone will say something to you that you had no idea they even picked up on. There are people that have, I've worked with for many, many years. I've never talked to about Jesus one single time but yet they will ask me about him because they know, they know that in you is the living God. And when you're in their presence, it is convicting just because just to be around them, it is convicting, I promise you. So because of that, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So, all these great people in the Bible, they pressed on, they believed, they were delivered, and they will inherit by faith a, a promise of an inheritance they never saw. Again, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never saw the full extent of God's promise to them, never. But they believed on God, and Jesus makes reference to it in Matthew, that when they are resurrected to their inheritance, many will come from the east and west to sit in the kingdom and talk to them. That's in Jerusalem, from the river Nile in Egypt to the river Euphrates through Iraq. That's the land grant to Abraham, and God's going to answer that promise. So did you know, though, that angels are watching us? This is so interesting. 1 Peter 1.12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister, the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. See, the angels are watching what you and I do. They want to know what is this gospel about? Why did, why did Jesus die on behalf of humanity? Satan was confused by this. He, he saw 
from Psalms 8 and others that man was going to have dominion over the world. And that's why in Psalms 8, he's going to God and asking, what is this man that you're mindful of him? See, he didn't, they don't understand why God would step off his throne, become a man for all eternity, and die for you and I. Or what you and I do with that love from Jesus. How do we take that? Because we have become the co-heirs with Christ, according to Romans, not the angels. They are not inheritors of the promise. They are servants of the, of the king. And so they're looking to us to see what do we do with this authority? What do we do with the promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling you and I permanently? They are unredeemable. There is no redemption for Satan and the third of the angels that rebelled. Jesus didn't die for them. And so what they have to do right now is find a way to break his word. That's the only way they can be okay for eternity, which is why they attack Israel so much because Hosea 5.15, Israel has to petition Jesus to return. So if they can wipe Israel out, then they can't petition him to return. Jesus has no chance to return because he has to be a man of his word and they can forever have the earth. That's, that's what Satan thinks right now, just to give you a little insight into the warfare. But the word weight here, so let us lay aside every weight. In the Greek, it means whatever is prominent, protuberance, bulk, mass, hence a burden, weight, or encumbrance. So just, it's pretty simple. Think about how, how effective would you be in running a race with a shackle around your ankle? You wouldn't make it very far, right? You, whether you're doing a sprint or a marathon, you would, you would end very quickly. You wouldn't make it. So what God is saying is you've got to take those weights off of you and put the yoke that he has intended for you and run with that. So you've got to lay whatever, whatever sin was besetting you before. When you become born again, you have the opportunity to lay it at the feet of Jesus and lay it aside so that you can run a race effective for him. And that's, that's the key in the sanctification process. So you, you would grow really weary quick. Okay, so notice in this verse, though, that the Lord separates the weight and the sin. So he says, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily doth so easily beset us. So sin being the active participation in rebellion. Think of it that way. Sin is the active participation in rebellion against God. Now, all of us are going to sin at some point, right? We're all, we are all fallen people. The key is, do you let that reign and rule in your life, or do you, or do you take it to the Lord and let him uproot it out of your life? The weight is the shame and the heaviness the enemy tries to burden you with as a result. And so just kind of think about it in that regard, the sin being the active participation in something, the weight being, well, look at what you did in your past life. Look, how, how can you live for Jesus when you're carrying this around? That's what the enemy wants you to focus on. And he does a great job of getting believers stuck in this cycle of shame that I have no right to live for the Lord, look at everything I've done. But the Lord says, cast your burdens on me and I will take them from you. And, and he not only forgives, but he forgets. So keep that in mind. The Lord does not bring to remembrance anything you've done in the past. If, you're, if, you're, if it's being brought to your memory, that's from the enemy. Okay, so you've gotta lay aside every sin that can easily surround, overwhelm, and overtake your life. You know, Jesus was beset by the enemy all around him, but not overtaken. He was just surrounded by them. Okay, and he references this. Psalms 22 is, is first person singular Jesus speaking from the cross. It starts out, my God, my God, why, have, why hast thou forsaken me? And you go down and that entire psalm is Jesus speaking from the cross. But on the cross, he says something interesting that's not in the Gospels. He says, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. See, when he was hanging on the cross, that interdimensional veil was ripped open and every demonic and fallen angel that was 
that's in the universe, that's in, in all of God's creation, was surrounding Jesus, mocking him, saying, see, we did it. We got you finally. And, and Jesus just had to sit there and take it and keep his mouth closed and wait until three days later, until three days later, and then he could, he, when he died, he went down into the center of the earth and proclaimed victory to all of those fallen angels. Okay, unrepentant sin will cause casualties. Look at Hosea 7 verse 2. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness, now their own doings have beset them about there before my face. See, they're before God's face if you're unrepentant of them. The second you're repentant of them, he remembers them no more. Okay, and let us run. So set the sin aside with, with which doth so easily beset us, and let us run. Let us run. We've got to run this race that Jesus set before all of us. And think about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. What did they do as soon as they saw the empty tomb? They ran. They ran. It's all in Matthew 28. Look at verses 8 and 9. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell, all hell, King Jesus. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. See, they ran to bring word. Now, this would be the most incredible moment in all history, I think, on earth, is the resurrection. Because in that moment... I mean, eternity and time totally stood still. And Jesus, his dead body laying on that table, there was probably every beam of light ever created colliding within that tomb. I bet that the light was so intense, it was piercing through the very atomic structure of the boulder and just going and wrapping from one end of the universe to the other all of this light just colliding in Jesus's body, they're raising up off the table and just in an instant, he was back. And I bet you could see it from one end of the earth to the other. It's just, it's just my speculation. But I don't think it was a quiet thing. I think that the world knew something radical just happened. And Jesus stood up and he, he could have blown open the tomb and, you know, done whatever, but he slowly rolls it back and just walks out. And he may never even walked on earth again. He may have just been hovering at that point. I don't know. Because um, it, if he steps foot on earth again from Zechariah, when he, when he steps foot back on earth again, the Mount of Olives splits in half, and that's, and that's after Armageddon. And so I don't know, maybe he was just floating along the whole time while he went to tell people. I'm not sure. But it's interesting to think about because his foot has a lot of power in it. So he may have, he may have, uh, he may have not touched the earth again. Okay, let us run. So we're running to press on and help expand the kingdom. So from the day of salvation until the day of death or the rapture, whichever comes first, you are on this sanctification process, right? Let us run. The second you are born again, you enter the race. It's from that moment until the day you depart from the earth. Nothing you did before that moment counts or matters. Okay, it's from when you become born again, from that time on, you are on the sanctification process. So look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27 here. Know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. See, that's one of the five crowns listed in the New Testament for something that you do that you're rewarded for. So running the race and having mastery over your life, there's an incorruptible crown waiting for you. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, 
So fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that any, by any means, when I preached unto others, I myself should be a castaway. See, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul was worried, right? He was, when you read a lot of his writings, what the Lord wrote through him, he was constantly worried about staying in the race and not being set aside. He knew that there was something he could do not to lose his salvation, but to lose his inheritance and place with Christ. And he was concerned about that constantly. If you look up how often the Bible talks about running a race, okay, it's all over the New Testament, but 1 Corinthians 1.8, who shall, who shall also conform, confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, when you speak in the day of Christ, it's different than the day of the Lord. So you have to rightly divide the word of God. The, the day of Christ shows up only in the New Testament. The day of the Lord is all over the Old Testament and, and it's referenced in the New a lot. Okay, just to separate the two. The day of Christ is the day of the rapture. That's the day of Christ. That's the day that you and I get our resurrected bodies, that everything that we did for him culminates in that moment. The day of the Lord starts after that time. Okay, it's the time of trouble, the time of tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. It's not just a single day, it's a season of trouble. It's the day of the Lord. It's, it's, if you go and look up all throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord, it's a time of wrath, great trouble. It meets all the characteristics of the seven-year tribulation. You and I, praise God, are not appointed to that time from 2 Thessalonians First uh, Thessalonians 4, all over the Bible. Okay, the day of Christ, it shows up again in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 10, that you may prove that, these, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. 2 Thessalonians 2.2, that ye may not soon, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Okay, the day of Christ. So you've got to be sensitive to the fact that the Lord has two different events here. And we talked a lot about that as we're going through the book of Revelation, starting with when we did the special deep dive study on the rapture, with you've got to rightly divide the return of Jesus at the rapture and the return of Jesus to set foot on the earth. You know, one, we meet him in the air. One, we all are believers, are translated we get our resurrected body. We are forever with him. It's something that only those that love him see, and we will handle him and see in that moment. His return to earth, every eye on earth sees him, and they mourn for him, and they, they weep. It's a time of trouble. He's coming back to rightfully take what he paid for and to rescue Israel in the seven-year tribulation. But Starting verse 1 to the first word of verse 2, there's three participles um, that connect these verses. It's seeing, laying aside, and looking. So seeing, seeing the Lord, laying aside the sin that besets you in your life, and then looking. And so it's a pattern. The Lord's laying out a pattern of these three, these three words here. So that's why verse 2 opens up with, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, there is nobody I would rather look toward than Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. See, the shame. See, they're trying to shame him, just like the enemy tries to shame Christians today. Okay, they're mocking, ridiculing, shaming. They're trying to do all of these things 
to get people off of their walk with the Lord, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are to look away from all distractions and look toward Jesus as the ultimate warrior. He is our example. 1 Peter 2, 21, for even hereunto were were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was revealed, or reviled, I should say, reviled not again. See, he didn't open his mouth. Remember Pilate, when he was standing before Pilate, and Pilate goes, are you not going to say anything to defend yourself? Well, it's to fulfill a prophecy from the Old Testament that he would open not his mouth. He didn't have to defend himself. And you, I'm, I'm telling you, in your life as you live for Jesus, you don't have to defend yourself. So let the Lord fight that battle for you. You, you just set the example out of love, patience, <clears throat> long-suffering. You just live for him and let the Lord do the rest. Okay, so leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. So here's the... The king of kings that could have just said a word or even just a thought, and everyone that was ridiculing him could have just gone away and just disappeared forever, but he didn't. He didn't threaten anything back, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when they come and he, and he says, who's the one you're, you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I am he and everybody, the, all the enemies take steps back and fall to their face. I mean, he was displaying his power. Remember, Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest and, or the, the priest that was with them. And Peter was ready to fight. Jesus was ready to humble himself and not fight at all. And, <clears throat> and the Lord had to heal that, that man's ear. Now, I've often wondered, did that man from that point on still want to crucify him and, and take him out? Or was he, was he sitting there going, wow, uh, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't mess with this guy. I don't know. But it's always interesting to me just thinking about what happened to all those people during, especially those, those short days, this last week in, on earth, <clears throat> how many of them repented and got saved after that? I bet a lot. I think Pilate was saved. Uh, because he, he was not surprised at the resurrection of our Lord. He, he told the Roman guards, remember, whatever you're going to do, seal it as much as you can, but it's not going to hold him. And his wife had that dream and, and all of that. So anyway, but he, he did not fight. Who his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Okay, keep in mind that Jesus is not on his throne right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. And that's the end of verse 2 there. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not on his throne yet. His throne is the throne of David that was promised to marry, excuse me, that was promised to marry in Luke 1, but it was also prophesied in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, all throughout the Old Testament. And in Luke 1, remember the angel, he shall be, he's speaking to Mary, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. That is the throne of Jesus. It's an earthly, political throne that he will rule the earth from. It's not in heaven. The Father's throne's in heaven. Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that's what the Lord says in Psalms 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's how long he sits there, until the end of the tribulation, when his enemies will be made his footstool. So the, the picture is, he was resurrected, he ascended to heaven, He took his place rightfully at the right hand of the Father. The church was formed. He gave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you and I uniquely as the church. 
which is unique to us and us only throughout the entire Bible. There's no other group of people that have this privilege that you and I enjoy. Now, the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament would come and go, but you and I, it's indwelled permanently. And so the uniqueness is, what did Jesus say? I must go, I must leave so the comforter can come. Well, the opposite is true. The comforter that indwells you and I must leave so Jesus can return. And so that's one of the, there's so many reasons for the rapture of the church, but that's one of them, is that the the Holy Spirit and Jesus seem to be um, exclusive to one another with their presence permanently on the earth. And so we're going to leave, then there's, there's some kind of gap, and we don't, the Bible doesn't say how long it is, but when the church is removed, what triggers the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel 9 is affirming a covenant. The Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel, and that triggers the start of the seven-year period that many call the 70th week of Daniel, the time of trouble. Now, the back half of those seven years is the great tribulation, according to Jesus from Matthew 24 the back three and a half years. And so the full seven years are horrible, but the back three and a half are the worst. And it's at the end of that, that Hosea 5.15, the Israelites petition his return. Revelation 19, the heavens open and we come back with him. And so then he's going to take his throne and set up the kingdom, the kingdom on the earth, the, the thousand years of Christ ruling on the earth. And that's all in Revelation 20 and beyond. But that's where you get it's a thousand years. Uh, it's all over the Bible, but specifically a thousand years in Revelation. Okay, so Jesus endured sinners mocking him. Okay, in Hebrews 12, verse 3 here. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So the perfect one who never committed a sin, who's completely holy and righteous, was spit upon, mocked, ridiculed as a child hated and tortured to death for you and I. And the torturing and the mocking was not just the last three and a half years of his life. It was his entire life. And that's exactly what Psalms 69 declares. So I didn't put it all in your notes, but I just want to read you Psalm 69 because this, this is a psalm of Jesus and the, what he had to endure his entire life. So I'll just start in verse 1 here. <clears throat> Save me, O God, for the, wa- for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in a deep mire where there is no standing. I come into the deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Isn't that neat just to think of Jesus? He wept a lot for you and I and for the people that were mocking him, that rejected him. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Thanks, Aaron. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face, I am become a stranger unto my brethren. Many of you may feel that way for Thanksgiving, if you're a stranger with some of your family members. And an alien unto my mother's children, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, That was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. Okay, in verse 12 here, you get a hint right here in Psalm 69, verse 12, that Jesus was mocked in the taverns as a child. He was the song of the drunkards because he he did not have a father. He was, they considered him, kids, don't repeat this word, they considered him a bastard, right? Uh, that's, we use that in such a derogatory term today. It just simply means one that doesn't know his dad. But they considered him that, and they made fun of him for it in Psalm 69, verse 12. He was the song of the drunkards. They sang about him 
and ridiculed him as a child all the way from the beginning. Okay, it goes on. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy. Hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And it goes on from there. But the whole psalm, Psalm 69, it's, it's an entire psalm from Jesus about, about being mocked and ridiculed his whole life. So in the final verse here in verse 4, ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Okay, that's kind of a bold statement by the Lord. You know, if you are alive and reading these passages from the Lord, then you've not resisted the sin, ridicule, mocking, persecution, etc., unto death, like Jesus. Okay, it's, it's just kind of a simple statement the Lord's making. You've not resisted this to the point of dying. Okay, so Jesus did something that you haven't done yet. Now, a lot of people throughout history were called to do that, and at some point, you and I may be called to do that. At some point, I know people over in the Middle East do that day in and day out, that they do not deny Jesus despite a gun being pointed to their head and their children in front of them. People do it all over the world. And that's why you need to, speaking of thanksgiving, we all need to be so grateful to God for where we live today and the fact that not just are we in the greatest country on earth, but you're in the greatest area of the greatest country on earth in a land that wants to tear down the altars of Baal, uh, known as abortion today, a land that wants to be free and uh, live in liberty, a land that's blessed, right, with 300 days of sunshine a year. It's a blessed land, so all of you need to be, all of us, we all need to be so thankful for that. Okay, it's not to say that nobody has resisted to death. It's just saying that if you're reading this, you haven't yet. Okay, that's all, that's all the Lord's saying. So if Jesus set the example, that is what we should be willing to do. He's the ultimate warrior who did all of this for us, and he wants a family. One of Chris's favorite phrases, right? God's economy. And Jesus has been trying to build a family since the garden. He wants a family. He wants a family that is dedicated to him. And what should you and I do in the meantime? Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, every sacrifice in the Old Testament temple was a sacrifice of something dead, and symbolically, you and I today, we are to be dead to Christ. We are to be dead to the world, dead for Christ, but yet you're living and breathing. You are a living sacrifice. 1 John 3.16, everybody in the world knows John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, you should memorize this also. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And that may not mean laying down your life to the point of death. Maybe it does. But what does laying down your life look like for the brethren? You know, it's, it's being selfless. It's going out of your way to help people. It's witnessing to people that are in your life. It's, it's being generous. It's giving. It's being full of joy and compassion and laughter. The, the world needs laughter right now. So if, you, if, if all you and I did was just go out and laugh a lot, we'd probably make a big difference. But people want to argue and fight and, and bicker about things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. And what we need to do is go live for Jesus. That's what we need to go do, do. Be a light to the world. You can't be a light if you, if you just stay in your house and keep what the Lord's done for you under a lampshade. Okay, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, there are... There are a lot of Christians that get into uh, bickering with one another and things and fighting, and if we all set those things aside, 
and just assume the best, seek to understand, and love one another that are serving the Lord. Now stand in truth, but love one another. Truth in love. It just it would make such a such a difference. I can't tell you how many people <clears throat> when we lived in Kansas City would talk to me about the Lord and just say, Yeah, I don't really want anything to do with him. It seems like all you guys do is fight with one another. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but as we're as we've been watching The Chosen. Uh, that line from the Roman soldier just really uh, hit me hard when he says uh, to the disciples, you know, all of you serve one God, and yet you're all divided. And that's just so true, that we all serve Jesus. And if you're serving him, this is his authority, right? The word of God's his authority, and it shouldn't be divisive. But greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, you, my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. That is what we need to do, love one another. So we serve a living king. He's from everlasting to everlasting, and he knew you before the foundation of the earth, all of you. And if you're watching this anywhere in the world, he knew you also. He tasted death for every man from Hebrews 2.9. He's coming to rule and reign on this earth, but before that time, he wants nothing more than your heart. All of you, he wants you in full submission to him, to serve him, to be called, to live a life holy and sanctified for him. Because at the end of the day, despite everyone watching, you're accountable to one. That's it. At the end of the day, you're going to stand before him and be accountable for what you and I, what we all did, right, in this world. Before that time, he just wants you. He wants to feed you and lead you and shape you, mold you refine you, and he's gathering an army of warriors for his kingdom, he, he wants a, an army of warriors that will not back down to the things of this world. And when you look at this, it all links back to the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So when you become a child of the king, don't take his name in vain. Don't take it and squander it and do nothing with it. Take it and boldly be an ambassador for him and go out and don't be afraid or ashamed of simply living for him. You're going, you're going to be hated by the world. I promise you, it's just going to happen. But all, all of this that was written before was written for our learning from Romans 15.3. Now, when you look at 2 Kings 23, See, they did not take the name of the king seriously, the whole, all of Israel. And what, but what turned the heart of the people from idol worshiping? It was what, what abominations did, we, did they carry in their lives they had to cast aside that we also carry? It was the word of God. That's all it was. When you look at 2 Kings 23, that whole chapter, but look at verse 2. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. That's all it took was reading the words, reading the word of God. And so often in the Old Testament, they would get together and just open the Bible and just read. That's it. There was no commentary on it or nothing else. They just read the, the word of God, and the people would cry out for their grievances and seek the Lord out of it. We've missed that a lot for a lot of years, uh, just in the global church as a whole. But when you look at Israel versus us, they were delivered out of Egypt, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They wandered through the wilderness, faithless, never entering God's promise. But they wanted to, did they want to hear from God directly? No. Exodus 20, God wanted to speak to them and they chose not to. They went to Moses and asked him to go speak to the Lord and not to hear from him directly. God wanted to talk to them, and they rejected him until finally they all perished except two, Joshua and Caleb, 
and God pruned their faithlessness out of, that, out of the wilderness. But once they entered God's promise, the real battle with the enemy started. Now, crossing the Jordan, the promised land, that's not heaven. That's entering into God's, you're in the battle, really. You're, you're serving him. There's an inheritance, but you're letting the Lord fight the battles. That's who fought the first battle at Jericho, Jesus from Joshua 5. And God did not want a human king over them from 1 Samuel 9. He wanted to be their king, but they wanted Saul. And, and because of that, they started just a spiral out of control. They wanted to look like the world, then they disobeyed God's word, and they were, strung into, they were drug into captivity into Babylon for 70 years as a result because they didn't listen to God's word. They were supposed to let the, the land rest, right, for till it for 49 years. Um, every seven years, I should say, they were to let it rest one year. So till it six, let it rest a seventh. They didn't do that for 490 years, and so they owed God 70 years. That's why they went to captivity for 70. But just some challenge questions, right? Where are you on trusting Jesus with your life? Not just salvation, but with your life. Do you have areas of your life that need to be laid at the throne of grace because he wants all of you and he will fight for you if you just trust in him? He will, he will refine everything in your life, your marriage, your finances, uh, the joy in your life, your relationship with your children, your relationship perhaps with extended family, parents, whomever. He will correct all of that if you just give him the opportunity. And so that's the key. That's the key is do you... Do you lay it all down? Okay, so you've got to lay it all down because, like Israel, they, they left strongholds in the land when Joshua went over, right? They did not listen to God in three areas, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And because of that, it's still a thorn in Israel's side today. And they, they left that idolatry and that, that paganism in the land, and they didn't get rid of it. And as a result, they're still fighting those battles all these thousands of years later. I mean, that was in the days of Joshua. And so the, the, the key for us is we've got to uproot that out of our lives, right? That's the key. Because if you don't, then you won't be successful in the war that you're fighting in. And that's what, that's what the next slide shows with Joshua. Okay, they had to curse things in their life. And they lost, they were struggling in the battle because of it. Can you go to the next one, Aaron? Okay, we've got to be successful in the battle, but then we've got to be watchful for the return of Jesus. You know, all through the Bible, it, it, it declares to keep watching, watching, take ye heed, watch and pray, watch ye therefore. You've got to rightly divide the word. Now, when you're being watchful, this was something that the Lord... Um, spoke to me a lot about this week, is, you know, at the end of, of the messages, I'm going to try to do this, if there's anything significant prophetically in the world, what's going on, we're going to just talk about it with one slide at the end of the message, just to try to give you all a, a framework to how to look at these things. Okay, if you're not familiar with the climate summit that's going on in Egypt right now, I don't know if it's still going on or not, but the world leaders all got together, right, to talk about how are we going to address uh, climate repentance, and it's, it's earth worship, it's Gaia worship from ancient, uh, the Greeks really were heavy, heavy into it, with the whole phrase Mother Earth, if you've heard that phrase. Well, as a part of that, what they did is a group of, of activists that support this went to, now it's not the real Mount Sinai, it's where they think Mount Sinai is in Egypt. They went to the top of it and created their own Ten Commandments. And they call them the Green Ten Commandments. It's, it's the green dragon, right? It's worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That's all it is. But what they did is on one of the tablets, you can see in the picture on the left there, the person holding it up, they wrote in Hebrew, broken promises. And so what they were declaring is that the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses, that God broke his promises, and that's why Moses dropped them and the tablets broke. And so they, they reenacted that, and they smashed the tablets on the ground and broke them and declared on Mount Sinai that God broke his promises. 
Now, I mean, that is about as crazy as you can get to stand up and blaspheme the Lord and tell him that his promises are broken in the very spot that they believe. Now, it's, again, it's not the real Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is in the Arabia Peninsula in Saudi Arabia, but they think it's the Mount of God, right? They thought that. And now, how should you and I as Christians, right, how should we respond to this kind of thing? Because it's, you may be asked about it. You may hear conversations about it. And, you know, when you look at what, what does the Bible say about it? When you look at God's answer to worshiping the earth and, and the climate and all that kind of stuff, uh, number one, anyone that's had a, a biology class from elementary school or junior high knows that CO2 is required, right? We all exhale CO2. The trees take CO2 and make oxygen. We need that. It actually thr thrives, the vegetation thrives off CO2. It's how it creates more oxygen. It's how you bear fruit and vegetables and all this stuff. But look what God says in Genesis 8, verse 22. While the earth remaineth sea time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So as long as the earth is here, seasons will be here, according to God's word in Genesis 8. Look what he says in Jeremiah 5. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord, will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it. And though the waters thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. In Psalms 104, he says the same thing. Thou coverest it with a deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. He's speaking of the flood. And they rebuke, at thy rebuke, they fled at the voice of thy thunder. They hastened away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast found, founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. See, the Lord set the bound of the sea and by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass. And so don't worry about rising tides and, and floods and glaciers melting or anything like that. The Lord says in his word that he set a bound that they cannot pass. And I didn't talk about it, but that picture, uh, if you saw the one with the cow with the, the thing over its nose, they actually are doing this to cattle all over the world to try to deflect the CO2 that they exhale so it goes down. That's, the, that's why they're doing that. And it's, it's unbelievable. I've never seen anything crazier in my life, maybe. But in any case, at some point it'll be, well, now they're just evil, so we need to kill all the cattle, and, and you all need to eat synthetic meats and things, and, and we can't have them around. It's destroying the world. But, you know, you've got to just look at all this stuff with a biblical lens and just realize that it is a, it's a pull for control. It's a pull for uh, globalism, control. If they can control you because we've got to save the earth, then they're going to try to do it. But before all of that happens, you and I have to get out of here. We have to go home. And before Jesus goes to war, he's going to call his ambassadors home, and that's what you and I are. And, and before any nation goes to war, they call their ambassadors from the from the. Uh, the ambassadors that live in that nation, right? They call them home. That's why people were really worried when Russia and Ukraine started fighting that all these nations started pulling their ambassadors out of Russia, out of Moscow, out of Ukraine, thinking that we may get involved in it somehow. So before Jesus goes to war, he's going to call us home. Uh, that's just another principle. But you want to make sure that you get saved now, not in the tribulation. So if, you're, if you are watching this, if you're here today, if you need the Lord, it's really simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You are once and for all sealed with the Holy Spirit in the book of life, never to go away and never to be unsaved. You cannot lose your salvation. That's why Jesus to Nicodemus said you must be born again because you can't be unborn. So if you need anything, there's our email address at the, the last slide. Feel free to reach out to us if you've got a praise report. Anything you guys need at all, just reach out. We're here to help. And uh, with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you would be the steward of our lives, that God, in all that we do, it would glorify and honor you. 
God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for what you are calling us out to do in this world, to be a light and to not, to not see this world as our home. God, we pray that we would not be rooted here, but we would be rooted in heaven and that we'd be looking up to you for all things. And Lord Jesus, you declared in Luke 21, when you see all of these things begin to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. God, we are looking expectantly, but while we are looking and watching, we will occupy. And God, we just want to serve you. God, we pray that you would continue to be with Rick in the hospital, continue to mend his wounds and let him get up and walk out of that hospital completely healed and made whole. Lord, we are thanking you and praising you for the healing in advance, God. Thank you for it. God, give us a great week as we gather with friends and family and loved ones from all around the country to celebrate and to be thankful. God, what a great time to gather together at Thanksgiving and to be thankful and to give our praise to you, God, to be so thankful for all that you've done in our lives. We love you and we praise your name. We give this week to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.